0: I'll have you turn to Matthew chapter 7. We're nearing the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Today we'll be in verses 21 through 23. And you recall we've been utilizing Matthew 7 to show the warnings that Jesus gives. Warnings that we've called warning signs on hell's highway. And So far, the warning signs we've seen are the warning signs of self-righteousness, of lovelessness, of easy believism and easy gospel, and of false teachers. And these are, these are warnings meant to show that it's possible to fool yourself. It is possible to believe that you're in Christ when actually you're not. Today, our text will give us the warning of false Christians. That it is possible to be a false Christian. And if you read the Sermon on the Mount all in one shot, as you get to verses twenty-one through twenty three, you notice a definite crescendo, a definite strengthening of intensity. And so this is really the the paragraph right before the conclusion to this sermon, and Jesus lays it all out here for us. Matthew seven, twenty one. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, in your name did we not prophesy? And in your name cast out demons and in your name do many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Let's pray together for just a moment. Our Father, we have just read from your dear Son this stunning statement that not all who call Him Lord belong to Him. It is a sobering statement even by itself. We ask you this day, Lord, to sort this issue out in our own hearts, to help us to examine our own hearts, to show us, Lord, if there be any among us that do not truly know you. Show this to those individuals, Lord. Show this to all those who are listening online, who hear this even at a later date. Lord, let this perhaps be the moment when they come to genuine saving faith. And We pray these things in Christ's name, amen. Just a couple of weeks ago, marked the 45th anniversary of one of my favorite people, Darren Weeb. February 9th, 1979. <laughs> it also marked the 55th anniversary of the ministry of John MacArthur at Grace Community Church in Sun Valley. It's February 9th, 1969. He did what every preaching textbook says don't do. He preached his very first sermon as their new pastor he got up and he read the same text we just read. He made a couple of comments and he announced the title of his sermon. That the title of his sermon was How to Play Church. Then he prayed this prayer. He said, Our Father, this morning as we approach this most serious passage of Scripture, may the Spirit of God use it to penetrate our hearts like a knife to lay bare our inmost self that we might know whether our relation to Jesus Christ is real or whether it is not. God, we pray that Christ might be exalted in this particular message this morning, that he might be lifted up, for it's in his name we pray. Amen. And in his opening comments, something that every preaching textbook says, don't do this. He said to his new church body, literally in the first five minutes of ever preaching to them, quote, I'm sure that in this church right here, there are people who come who do not know Jesus Christ in a personal, vital way. I am convinced that because of the size of the congregation this morning, there are some sitting right here in this audience who have come to church many times, but who do not know Jesus Christ. And perhaps they even have religious sensations, and perhaps they even have sanctimonious emotions, but they do not know Jesus Christ. And it is my conviction that before we as a church can move together as a body, as a unit, we must become a unit. And the only way we can ever be united and become one, as Christ prayed that we might be, is that when we are all real in Christ, and so I want us to carefully examine our lives this morning. And he preached a very direct sermon from Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Some people were mad. Some people never came back. Some of the leaders were highly worried. But over the the, the past decades, the theme that has defined that ministry has been genuine salvation, genuine conversion, the reality of what it means to be in Christ. Grace Community Church, was among one of the very first churches in America at that time period to bring back the practice of church discipline, to actually identify people as unbelievers in their church and to do with them as the Lord commanded. They've preached the fruit of salvation as evidence of genuine conversion consistently for decades. Why is this the case? This is all based simply on believing what the Bible says and believing what Jesus says. Taking it at face value. This is a sobering text. There's no humor here. It's it's meant to be sobering. We're not to shy away from it. And let me just briefly tell you three positive effects that this text can have. First of all, for believers in Christ. For you as a believer, this text ought to remind you of the preciousness of your salvation. That the Spirit of God opened your heart and opened your eyes and opened your mind to Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ because the Holy Spirit regenerated you and gave you a heart of faith, gave you the gift of faith. This is all from God, nothing from you. And so for you, I hope that as you read and think on these chilling verses, that your thankfulness for your salvation just goes up. To the false believer... My prayer is that the finality, the deadly seriousness of this warning would be what drives you to genuine repentance. From a human standpoint, do you know what keeps fake believers in the church from repenting? They'd be too embarrassed to admit that they were fake. Don't go to hell because you were embarrassed. God is offering salvation freely right now at this moment. There's a third positive effect, and that is for us as a church as a whole. I think for us as a church as a whole, this text helps us to not have rose colored lenses, rose colored glasses concerning those who call themselves Christians. There must be regeneration. There must be faith. There must be repentance. There must be a changed life. There must be no substitute. There's no shortcut. There's no other way. God does not care who your parents are. God does not care what church you go to. God does not care what religious things you did. God does not care who you know, who your friends are, what denomination you're a part of, how often you've been in church, whether you're in Sunday school all the time, whether you give to joyful generosity, whether you serve, He doesn't care about any of that if you're not in Christ. And so may we as a church have an accurate view that salvation is all from God and nothing from us. And that we're grateful for it. But that Jesus did promise there would be tares among the wheat. You know, and we, we see this sometimes. We are forced, compelled by obedience to Christ at times to exercise church discipline. And while I understand this from a human standpoint, some of you at times get upset, perhaps even angry over this. Could I say this? Why are you surprised? Jesus said there would be tares growing up among the wheat. And when they identify themselves as such, then we have responsibilities. This is a sobering text. I think the best plan today is to follow the contour of this text very closely and show you three features of a false believer. Three features of a false believer, the fake Christian. We're going to spend the first half of our time here in this text And then I'm going to go to a different text to tell you what we're going to do about it. Three features of the false believer. I'll give them to you up front. First, we'll look at the deception. Then we'll look at the description. And then finally, we'll look at the destiny. The deception of the false believer, the description of the false believer, and the destiny of the false believer. And then we're going to answer the question, what do we do about this? in a completely different text. First of all, let's look at the deception of the false believer. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. The belief system known as the free grace movement, or easy believism, and that's a name they came up with, not us, But this system known as free grace says that everyone who makes a profession of faith at one time, any time, even if there isn't a single discernible change in that person's life, is to be considered a Christian. And in fact, they organize Christians into two categories, the disciples and the carnal Christians, the obedient and the disobedient. And yet they claim that all are saved. This belief system was catapulted to worldwide prominence when Dr. Zane Hodges published his book called The Gospel Under Siege. And in his book, Hodges denies the necessity of good works in the Christian's life. He denies that the, that they are fruit of salvation or the outcome of saving faith. He says that the Bible never teaches that the true Christian will persevere in good works. And so you have the division of the faithful and the carnal Christians. Little side note, when I was pastoring in Texas, our little church got a College student that grew up in Zane Hodges' church. And I had read this book, The Gospel Under Siege, and I asked her, What was your church like? And she said, It's chaotic, adultery and sin everywhere because nobody's calling anybody out on anything because everybody's a Christian. And she couldn't get away from it fast enough. Those who reject this division of the faithful Christians and the carnal Christians. Those who reject that division are often labeled as believing what they call lordship salvation. That to be truly saved, you must receive Christ as both Savior and Lord. There's another name for lordship salvation. Here, we just call it salvation. But the Bible's position on all believers is that of unity. Total unity. Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, all of us, in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Romans 6, 17 says, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Did you catch that? You were once slaves of sin, now you're obedient. This theological camp says that to be saved, you must merely only acknowledge Jesus as your Savior, but not as your Lord. Kurios, your Master. That you can divide the two. I don't think Jesus would appreciate being divvied up that way. That He's your Savior first, and then potentially later, your Lord. Scripture certainly doesn't bear that out. The angels in the field at night didn't announce to the shepherds, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ, potentially the Lord. Paul didn't say in Philippians 3.20 that our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior who might be your Lord Jesus Christ. No. Seven times in the New Testament Jesus is called our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. No, no, no. A one-time profession of faith is not proof of salvation. Listen, don't place all your spiritual eggs in that basket. Don't keep hanging on to this moment in time that you think you asked Jesus into your heart, whatever that means. Nowhere in Scripture do we see assurance of salvation based in a dim memory of an event. Then you might say, well, what about the Apostle Paul? He came face-to-face with Christ. Fine, you didn't. If you're the one who was in church Sunday school class when you were eight or nine years old and the teacher said, everyone who wants to accept Jesus, raise your hand and then we'll have cookies and Kool-Aid. Okay, if that's you, don't trust that. Don't trust that. It's Satan's lie. What is the evidence of true salvation in Christ? Jesus says it here. He who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. The evidence of true salvation is the fruit of a sanctified life. He who does the will of my Father, this is a present active participle, meaning this isn't he who one time did the will of my Father, this is a participle, he who is doing the will of my Father, who is living for the Lord. This is the one who's living out Romans twelve two. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may approve what the will of God is—that which is good and pleasing and perfect. There's a clear change in allegiance, in loyalty, in behavior, in attitude, in thought, in priorities. Everything changes. Why? Because Second Corinthians five seventeen says, "Therefore, if anyone is in new is in Christ, of what? New creation. Everything changes." It will not be a person's profession of faith that counts for his eternity. It will be the demonstration of the reality of that profession by the way he's lived. And Listen, it is a tired, worn out, old, weary, thin, every other adjective I can think of, of argument that says, oh, that's legalism or that's works-based salvation. No. True regeneration The changing of the heart, the changing of the mind by the Holy Spirit is quite naturally lived out in my new loyalty toward Christ and the new attitude toward sin. My attitude toward sin is that sin grieves God and so it grieves me. My attitude is that of hating sin, of yearning for Christ-likeness, yearning toward sanctification. This is not... A contrast between works and grace. That's a false dichotomy. This is a contrast between a verbal profession of faith and a lifestyle of faith. That's the contrast. If someone's truly regenerate, they're no longer fundamentally at their core selfish. Yes, we act selfishly many times, but fundamentally at your core, that's not who you are anymore. You bear genuine spiritual fruit in your lives. Now, Jesus isn't saying here that it's a bad thing to call upon Christ as Lord, obviously. He's saying that using those words means nothing without the life that backs it up. And Lord, in this time period, was just a general word that could mean respect. Hello, sir. Anyone can say that. For the Christian, though, the true believer, the meaning is elevated. When the Old Testament was translated into Greek, Lord was used traditionally from that point forward, even in almost all of our English Bible translations, for the divine name of Yahweh. It was the word that Christians used when they saw the name of God in the Old Testament. They called Him Lord. This indicated their belief in His deity, in His majesty. And here, in this case, at Judgment Day, all who appear before Him will believe Him to be Lord. All. They will believe him to be God. But now they're saying, Lord, Lord. And they're claiming quickly to belong to him. They're they're giving this last ditch effort to muster up some sort of justification for themselves. Because at that moment, they will believe. But at that moment, it's too late. The deception of the false believers that he hangs his entire eternal destiny on one false profession of faith or on church attendance, or on religious actions, on anything except actually repenting. That's the deception of the false believer. Let's look at the description of the false believer. The description is found in verse 22. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, in your name did we not prophesy, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name do many miracles. Let me just observe a couple of small details here. First of all, notice the quantity of false believers. Many will say to me, That goes right along with Jesus' warning in verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there it is again. There are many who enter through it. And second, I want you to notice the location. Many will say to me, on that day. Why is that the location? Because this is a reference to the most bone-chilling, terrifying scene in all the Bible. I'll just read it to you. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sits upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. Then I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds, and the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Revelation chapter 20. I want you to notice here. The main thrust of this verse these people's appeal to their belief in their own personal power, their own spiritual resume. Or if I could put it this way, this description of the false believer is very charismatic, it's very Pentecostal. They make their case on the basis of what sparkly, powerful, glitzy, ecstatic spiritual lives they've led. First, they say, Did we not prophesy? In basic terms, to prophesy is a, is a claim to foretell the future or to give the word of God from direct revelation. It can also be used more generally speaking of simply explaining the word of God. But in this case, this has more the charismatic sense. Didn't we speak for God? Didn't we hear a word from you and say what we heard? Didn't we appear to speak for God? Didn't we read the Bible? Didn't we go to Bible studies? Didn't we speak the word into people's lives? If you've ever been victimized by one of these charismatic groups, you know that the peer pressure is intense. The pressure to be part of this. When this person, then that person, then that person, then that person person begins hearing a word from God. And all of a sudden, you're looking around. There's only three of you that haven't. And you're starting to feel the pressure. Listen. That sort of group, that sort of emphasis on receiving personal prophecy... Is always associated with an ignorance of scripture. It's always associated with a light, ineffective gospel. And with a heavier emphasis on these ecstatic prophecies, you get off base from the actual word of God. By the way, these prophecies always seem to be positive. If you've ever been in that environment, you know this. You never hear a so-called prophet in the church telling some poor slob, oh, I'm sorry, God is telling me that before this day is out, you'll lose all your money, then the bus is going to run over you as you're walking in front of your front door. May God have mercy on you. Next, please. They never say that. Why? Because there's no money in it. There's no money in that. Right now, you realize that on the continent of Africa, charismaticism is considered normal Christianity. Prophecy ministries are rampant. These are considered normal. There probably isn't a week that goes by that I don't get a random email from some self-appointed pastor or prophet or apostle or something in Africa talking about the glories of his prophecy ministry. If I put together all the things that these pastors in Africa have written to me about what God is telling them to tell me, I, I could probably put together a whole new book. In disgusting fashion, these false prophets are telling crowds of tens of thousands of people living on the edge of starvation that God is speaking to them and they'll be wealthy and prosperous if they just give to this ministry those last few pennies that they have. But the people standing before Christ are saying, We prophesied in your name. No, they didn't, it was fake. They said, Didn't did we not cast out demons in your name? First of all, to be clear, they thought they were casting out demons, or they said they were casting out demons. They were not casting out demons by the power of God. We already know that. The only other option is to cast out demons by the power of Satan. Jesus makes this unlikely. When he was accused of casting out demons by the power of Satan, he said, How can Satan cast out Satan if Satan has risen up against himself? He is finished. He said that in Mark 3. But we could take this in a more general sense. We could take it in the sense of, didn't we help people turn their lives around? Didn't we put on charismatic marriage seminars? Didn't we lead them to healing services? Didn't we help them speak in tongues? Didn't we see them improve their marriages? Didn't we get them off drugs? Didn't we get them off alcohol? Listen carefully. Unbelievers can turn their lives around in some sort of general sense deciding to get sober or to stop committing crimes and so forth, that is not proof of salvation. Spiritual fruit hates sin because God hates sin. That's the fruit of salvation. And third, they say, did we not do many miracles in your name? Literally, didn't we do mighty works in your name? I've heard this numbers of times. Hey, I I witnessed this miracle. It has to be true. 2 Corinthians 2 9 and 10 describes one of the strategies of deception that Antichrist will employ during the Great Tribulation, whose coming is in accord with the working of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders and with all the deception of unrighteousness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Did you catch that? They believed the false signs and wonders. They didn't believe the truth. They didn't believe the gospel. And that's happening today. I suppose the Trinity Broadcasting Network has always believed they were doing the work of power, and yet no media group has ever been a greater purveyor of False teaching and unsaved teachers in the history of mass media. Not even close. But in this speech, given to Jesus, did we not prophesy? In your name cast out demons. In your name do many miracles. This last ditch defense. You know what's missing here? Did you notice that there's no reference to sin? There's no reference to repentance. There's no reference to humility. There's no reference to the cross. There's no reference to any unworthiness. Instead, this is a, a boastful, self-righteous attempt to show how necessary they were to Christ's cause. That they've done great things and therefore they've earned God's favor. This isn't humility. This isn't them on their knees going, but Lord, it, this is, hey, we did this for you. What do you think you're doing? It's arrogance. It's disgusting. They're still saying how great they are and still refusing to call him Lord in the truest sense. They're just speaking the words. If you were to read on the website for Kenneth Copeland Ministries, there's a tab called Brief History, which is about 20 million words. Kenneth Copeland is probably the most well known, most influential charismatic purveyor of false gospels in the world. If you can hold your lunch down while you read this, you would read claims of prophecy, victory over demons, and great miracles. For example, in 1979, and I'm quoting, the Lord instructed Gloria Copeland to start teaching on healing every meeting. There's a claim to prophecy. She heard the Lord say, I want you to share what you know about being healed because I want my people well. The ministry began adding healing school to their conventions and victory campaigns. There's victory over demons. And it continues to be a staple in these meetings. God always shows up to healing school and people are always healed. Great miracles. You know this the arrogance. We're having this m- great meeting. And isn't it nice? God showed up. Like God's knocking at the door going, hey, I'm so glad you invited me. Those who are caught in the trap of the charismatic movement in its current form ought to be terrified of Matthew 7 because it's describing them. Jesus is describing them. That's the deception, the description of the false believer. Let's look at the destiny of the false believer. Verse 23, the destiny of the false believer. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. When Jesus says, I never knew you, this isn't in the sense of not having knowledge of them. It's in the biblical sense of knowing someone in love. Even in the Old Testament, the phrase is often used of a husband and a wife that they knew one another and they conceived a child. This is relational knowledge. This is the knowledge that Jesus spoke of in John chapter 10, verse 14. I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me even as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. He says, I have never known you. I have never loved you. I have never been with you. You have never been in me. You have never been one of mine. We have never had a relationship. We have never been at the cross together. We have never Been in the waters of baptism together. I have never known you. And then he says. That he will say. Naming himself as judge by the way. Depart from me. This isn't discipline. This isn't a spiritual spanking of some sort. This isn't partial punishment for a time. This isn't. Come back tomorrow when you have a better attitude or when you can say something nicer. This is total rejection forever and ever. This is the lake of fire. This is the place of weeping. This is the place of gnashing of teeth. This is the place where there is no hope. This is the place of crying out for relief when there will be none. And if you can imagine suffering like this for a day, then maybe you can imagine suffering like this for a week. And if you can imagine suffering like this for a week, you can imagine a month. Maybe you can imagine a year. Maybe you can imagine a decade. You cannot imagine eternity. All because a false believer refused to say, I've been a fraud and I must run to the cross. Why is hell forever because sin is forever unless it's atoned for jesus said that they are the ones who practice lawlessness this is a participle it means it's the habitual practice they ignore the actual law of god the law of christ is found in the new covenant they couldn't care less about obeying the lord there's no repentance no sorrow Not even some little tediously slow, painful growth in the Lord of a Christian. But this is a life of disregarding the Lord while being outwardly religious. This is terrifying stuff. So what do you do with this? What do you do if you may be in danger of being a false believer? I'd like to devote the rest of our time to answering that question I'd like to have you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. i like to return to Hebrews 6 every once in a while because it contains warnings on the same level as Matthew 7. So is it possible to make a profession of faith? Is it possible to have claimed... To be a Christian for months, years, or even decades and not actually be in Christ? Is it possible to observe the changed lives of all those around you? To sing all the songs? To witness the work of God in so many? To even enjoy hearing the Bible explained? And yet to either eventually walk away from the faith or be exposed as a fraud? Is that possible? The Apostle John thinks so. First John two nineteen, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be plain that they all are not of us. Paul thinks so. 2 Corinthians thirteen five, he said, examine yourselves to see whether you were in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Jesus thinks so. We've already seen this in Matthew 7. And the writer of the book of Hebrews thinks so. The last few verses of chapter 5, the author warns that those who are not fully in Christ, not fully engaged in the faith, that they're in danger. The writer of Hebrews is writing to multiple audiences. Among them are Jews who are, are tempted to forsake Christ, to go back to Judaism, but they haven't come all the way to Christ. And they're in danger. Chapter 5, verse 11, Concerning Him we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers... You have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God and you have come to need milk and not solid food for everyone that partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern both good and evil. And so the writer now presents a solution to that danger. And the solution is found in the first eight verses of chapter 6. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about Christ. It means the beginning teaching, the the very smallest things about the gospel. It doesn't mean we don't go back to the gospel, but he's speaking to those who are likely not in Christ. He said, quit rehearsing that and actually repent. Quit thinking about the truth and act on it. Let us press on to maturity. "...not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and the faith toward God of teaching about washings and laying out of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For in the case of those once having been enlightened and having tasted of the heavenly gift and having become partakers of the Holy Spirit, and having tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and having fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance." since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. I'll read the last two verses of that section in a bit. This is the solution. And just from verses 4 through 6 or so, there's two parts to this solution. For the one who wonders, am I that person saying, Lord, Lord? First part of the solution is stop fooling yourself. Stop fooling yourself. Beginning in verse 4, the author presents five resources that the false believer has had immediately at his disposal. Five benefits. But these resources are precisely what has led the unbeliever to fool himself. None of these five resources are ever used anywhere else in the New Testament to speak of a genuine Christian. Here they are. First resource, they were enlightened. They were enlightened. Verse 4. Or in the case of those once having been enlightened and having tasted of the heavenly gift, verse 6, and having fallen away. This is not speaking of losing salvation. Jesus made it very clear in John 10 that He won't allow one saved person to be lost. He'll keep them in His hand. But once having been enlightened, what does this mean? This means they've had intellectual exposure to the truth. They've received knowledge. They've seen the light of Christ. They've heard the gospel. In Luke chapter 4, in his hometown of Nazareth, Jesus taught about himself from the Old Testament. And he said essentially, I'm here now. And all the people who just heard the truth, you remember what they tried to do? They tried to throw him off a cliff. They'd been enlightened, but seeing God's light and receiving God's light are two different matters. The second resource, they were exposed They were exposed. In verse 4, they tasted of the heavenly gift. Again, this phrase is never used of a true believer in the New Testament. The text doesn't specify what the heavenly gift is, but the most likely candidate is simply Christ and salvation. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. They've tasted, they've sampled the gift was just tested, not lived, not fully gulped, not fully received. This is why what Jesus said in John 6 is so shocking. Listen to this shocking statement. Beginning in verse 53 of John 6, he said this to skeptical people. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. What is his point? You can't just taste of Christ. You must consume him. And you must be consumed by him. The false believers had toyed with salvation. They'd watched others be saved. They had attended baptism services. They had heard the gospel preached. They'd been to Bible studies. They saw the benefits, they saw the fruit in their lives. But they just sort of joined the parade, marching along, but not being part of the band, so to speak. It's a third resource. They were enlightened. They were exposed. Third, they were witnesses. They were witnesses. Verse 4, having become partakers of the Holy Spirit. Partakers. It's a word that means participated in or associated with. What does this mean? Well, it means this. Someone else has made a campfire and you just sneak into the camp to feel a little warmth of the fire that's not yours. They'd seen the changed lives of those who did possess the Spirit of God as born again believers. But listen, the Bible never says Christians are associated with the Holy Spirit. Christians are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, regenerated by the Holy Spirit, sealed by the Holy Spirit, changed by the Holy Spirit. Not just associated with. And you might say, Well, how can somebody not be a Christian yet sort of be associated with the Holy Spirit? It's because they're around Christians. Christians are the greatest people in the world to be around. We're not perfect, but we are being perfected. And God is forming Christ in us, Galatians 4. And even the unbeliever potentially enjoying this fellowship, maybe even feeling the feeling of being around believers who are truly worshiping Christ can fool himself as merely a witness of the power of the Holy Spirit, fooling himself into thinking he's a recipient of the power of the Holy Spirit when he's not. They were enlightened, exposed. They were witnesses. Here's the fourth resource. They were taught. They were taught. Verse 5, having tasted the good word of God. The usual word for word when it speaks of Scripture emphasizes the whole counsel of God. That's not the word used here. This word for word is different, it speaks of the individual parts, the phrases, the pieces, the statements, the puzzle pieces. These people had heard the Word of God as bits and pieces of interesting information, maybe even inspiring information, but they've never put the whole picture together that the Scriptures tell a redemptive story from Genesis to Revelation that mankind sinned in Genesis and a Savior was promised in Genesis and in the Gospels the Savior comes and in Revelation the Savior comes again. Jesus said to the Jews who were seeking to kill Him, John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. What did he just tell these Bible scholars? He just told them, you can know all the Bible in the world that doesn't save you. It is the author of the Bible that saves you. This is the person who spent months or years or decades in the church They've listened to perhaps thousands of sermons. They've enjoyed some. They've been critical of many. But they keep coming back and gaining knowledge. And the more they know, the more they fool themselves into believing they're in Christ. And once in a while, I'd have someone who's honest and says, I'm I'm not a Christian, but I really, really like your sermons. I'm not sure what to do with that, to be honest with you. But when I have the chance, I have told a couple of them, then you're in danger because you're tasting and you like the taste, but you won't eat of Christ. They were enlightened, exposed, their witnesses, they were taught. Here's the fifth resource. They were astounded. They were astounded. They've seen the powers of the age to come. Verse 5. The age to come speaks of the future kingdom of Christ on earth. The kingdom's miraculous powers that will be normal and routine during the great millennium. They saw the miracles performed by the apostles spoken of earlier. In Hebrews, Hebrews 2, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. These are the ones who saw Jesus raise the dead. These are the ones who saw Him give sight to the blind. He gave hearing to the deaf. He saw Him heal the terminally ill and yet they rejected Him. These are people who have been enlightened, exposed, witnesses, taught, astounded. They've seen the light of Christ, the benefits of salvation, the power of the Holy Spirit, the truth of the Word of God. They've be even been astounded by the miraculous signs as the authenticity of the apostles' message. They have had tremendous resources. What else can God give them? Nothing. 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 They were in the very best position possible to repent. They needed to stop fooling themselves. It's the second part to the solution. Stop waiting. Stop waiting. Verse 4 says, For in the case of those once having been enlightened, having tasted of the heavenly gift, having become partakers of the Holy Spirit, Having tasted the good word of God, the powers of the age to come, and having fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. It's impossible. You've had all these resources, and then you still reject the gospel, then have fallen away to renew them again to repentance. The point is that the unbeliever is in serious danger here. Serious danger of losing the opportunity to be saved, that if they reject Christ, reject the gospel at this highest point of Knowledge and conviction when they're steeped in the truth, when they're in the church, then there's no hope for them. Or if I could put it this way, if you won't accept Christ in the church, what makes you think you'll find Christ in a bar? In fact, what they're doing is, the end of verse 6, they crucify to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. They've been vaccinated by the gospel, so to speak. They've gotten just enough to be immune to actual salvation. And the longer he resists, the more resistant he'll be. What does this mean that they're crucifying once again the Son of God? I think it's answered by the, the phrase, they put him to open shame. For the Jew who is tempted to turn back to Judaism because of the fear of persecution, I'm going to turn away from Christ and turn to Judaism again. It means that they decided that Jesus wasn't the Messiah. If Jesus wasn't the Messiah, what does that mean? It means he deserved to die. With all the evidence before them listed in verses 4 and 5, they judged Jesus to be a fraud. They held him in contempt. They held him as guilty. And now, the one that Jesus tells us will say to him, Lord, Lord, on the day of judgment, given the chance, they would have said, crucify him, crucify him. By the way, you know who this person is just like? Just like Judas. Judas had those resources. He was enlightened. He tasted the heavenly gift. He saw the power of the Holy Spirit. He heard the word of God from the mouth of God. And he saw the miraculous powers of the age to come. And he still betrayed Jesus to the cross. Hebrews 10.29 is how much worse punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as defiled the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The admonition to the person on the verge of this category is to stop waiting. Stop waiting. Stop waiting. It's not just that the false believer might die tonight or tomorrow, but that he might be rendered permanently lost. The longer someone stays on the brink, the more he leans back on fooling himself, on listing his resume of all the things that he thinks proves himself to be a Christian. The more danger he's in. This might not always be a, a conscious decision to reject Christ. It might just be someone who's tolerant of the gospel. Like, nah, all right, if that's what you want to believe. It's a mistake to believe that if you aren't outwardly against Christ, that somehow that makes you safe. Jesus said with the utmost clarity in Matthew twelve thirty that whoever is not with me is what? Against me. The idea of taking longer to consider Christ is really only valid for one type of person. And that is the one who has just recently been exposed to the truth of the gospel is literally in the middle of learning the gospel and the truth about Jesus and trying to absorb this truth. But the one who's heard the truth over and over and over and over again should never wait, never think this through, never let me pray about this. what, What does that mean? Let me pray to the God who's about to judge me for all eternity to see whether He should save me or not. No. Hebrews 10.26 says, If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. In the close of this section, Hebrews 6 gives an obvious illustration. Hebrews 6 verse 7, For ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it, And brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled. Receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is unfit and close to being cursed. And its end is to be burned. This is a little tiny parable about the land that has abundant rain. If the land produces a crop, then it's blessed. But if after all the rain, see also being enlightened, exposed, witnesses taught, astounded... If after all of that, the land still produces thorns, it's near to being cursed and being good for nothing but to be the site of a really big fire. Stop fooling yourself. Stop waiting. The free grace movement is concerning on so many levels, they give people a false sense of assurance, a false sense of salvation. All for one sake, by the way, to fill all the chairs they possibly can in the church. But it's also concerning because those in the free grace movement, particularly the, the more vocal proponents, have labeled lordship salvation, what the Bible says, not just as a doctrinal disagreement, but listen carefully, they've labeled what you believe and what I believe from Matthew seven, twenty one through twenty three as heresy. Did you know that? This is extremely serious. This is saying that to believe lordship salvation or biblical salvation means you're deceived by a message that will take you to hell. And ironically, it's the other way around. One pastor, ironically, of a Bible church, and the word Bible church doesn't mean anything anymore in our culture, unfortunately, he preached a 13 week series called The Heresy of Lordship Salvation. And he based his entire series on his assertion that Lordship Salvation says this. Faith alone in Jesus Christ is not enough to save. It is a belief that one must commit himself to a certain level of good works or obedience or discipleship to really be saved. The name of this grace-polluting heresy today is called Lordship Salvation. And he picks on one particular proponent of Lordship Salvation. He calls them names. He calls them confused a rambler, a poor exegete, a junior-level theologian, naive, inaccurate, on the rampage, arrogant, ignorant. This confused, rambling, naive, junior-level theologian he was referring to is, of course, John MacArthur. Interestingly, in the same sermon, this pastor didn't actually present MacArthur's position accurately, nor did he, in any of the 13 messages, and I listened to all of them, ever accurately present what the Bible actually says about salvation. Can the proponent of easy believism of free grace be saved? Of course. Because salvation is by faith alone, given by grace alone, not affected by human effort, but by the will of God. But they wouldn't say that you can be saved. One of the most prominent spokesmen for the free grace movement, Bob Wilkin, he wrote this, is lordship salvation a saving message? No, it is not. So ironically, not only are they saying, hey, if you made a profession once when you're seven years old, you're in. But he's saying to people who have been living a faithful Christian life, you're not in because you believe that your good works are somehow part of your salvation. Your good works are a reflection of your salvation. They're not a cause. I would never, never, ever want to be in the shoes of someone who has given false assurance of salvation to one person on this earth or to several or to a church full of people based on the one-time profession of faith. As a pastor, I have made a choice that if there is a dividing line, if there is a a, a grand line where everything's going to flow this way or that and I have to decide which one I'm going to fall on the side of, of saying, you'd better be saved. You'd better be saved. You'd better be saved. And have you show up in heaven going, I'm here. Yay. Never will I say to any of you, oh, you've been here for a couple of years. Of course you're saved. Never. Because Jesus didn't do that. So what do we do instead? Well, instead, you believe the true gospel. Here's the true gospel. Jesus said, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's the gospel. And in such tender terms, he said, Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Beautiful rest. Peace with God. Our Father, it is with gratitude that we who know you come to you thankful for the fact that we have peace with God through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we would ask you this day, Lord, we're asking Lord, for those in our midst who maybe even right now are having a, a crisis of faith, and they know in their hearts that they may have been playing church, that they may have been playing Christian. And they have been exposed to all of these benefits. Holy Spirit, move in their hearts right now. We pray for the children in our church. How thankful we are that they're being raised in the admonition of the Lord, that they're being taught during children's church and during the Sunday school hour and being taught during Adventure Club on Sunday evenings. Oh, how thankful we are for that and how it enriches our families. But Lord, for each of those children, they must each come to a crisis of faith where they repent of their sin and believe what they have been taught. And so we pray for them as well. For our youth who are on the verge of being launched into life as adults, no longer able to pretend to ride on the coattails of their parents' faith. We pray for them, Lord. We pray that as they grow into manhood and womanhood, that they would be truly saved, truly regenerate. And Lord, I know this is a big request and you promised that tares would grow up in the wheat, but Lord, all those in this room today and those listening to this message, we're asking together that all of us would appear together before the throne someday at the end of all things. We thank you for the reminder that salvation is the most precious gift in all of the universe, one for which we will give you thanks for all time. We praise you and thank you in Christ's name, amen.